Picking up at verse 5 in Isaiah chapter 9. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Not really a Christmas verse, but hang with me. Uh, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's word. You may be seated as we go into prayer this morning. Father, there's a lot of things that we could just bring up before you today. I would just ask that you would settle our hearts before your throne. For those who have never been here before and those who have been here since this building was built, I pray, Father, that we would come before you this morning in a, in a way that we never have. That you would make our hearts tender to your voice and to your word. You would help us to see what it is you have done here in this brief little passage of Scripture, what it means for us, what it means for this world. Help us, Father, to be settled before you in this season of waiting, waiting for that great advent for when our King Jesus returns. Because you've promised us that that is what is going to happen. Settle us before your throne this morning, Lord. Help us to be focused in this season, circled around your word, praying for people that we know need prayer for encouragement, for healing, or for protection. Sometimes this is a time of year that's very difficult for people, having to process through it after having lost loved ones or just having a hard time in this season. Father, I pray your hand would be upon them, that you would encourage them. You would do so through your people. You would do so through your spirit and through your word. Lord, I'm thankful that we can pray for our brothers and sisters. Thankful, Lord, that we can lift up Deb's sister to you. I'm thankful that we can lift up Flossie. I'm thankful that we can lift up our leaders, all of those who serve in the military. We, we put them before you, Lord, and we say thank you. Thank you that you hear our requests. I pray that you would answer in accordance with your will, that if it be that you bring healing for people, that you would bring immediate healing. Father, that you would protect those who are serving this great country. Lord, that you would give wisdom to those who lead. Each and every one of us have to stand before your throne on that day. I pray that you would give them the wisdom needed to exercise good authority and good leadership. Make our hearts tender towards you, Lord, today in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been a little bit different going through this Advent season for me. Normally, I have it all planned out, mapped out, and everything, and I actually did, and then I didn't. <laughs> so here we are. Um, I think that as we, we look at Isaiah 9, it's pretty purposeful. For, for those of you who weren't here last week, we started out in this chapter, and we just recapped what it was Isaiah was trying to do for the people of Israel, reminding them that as the enemy was at the gate, as it were, they were being taken into exile because of their rebelliousness against God and, and the, the, the fact that he passionately loved them and he was making a way for them to be able to come home before they even left. 
And we're going to be expanding on that even more this morning as we look at the next three verses in chapter 9 from a little bit different perspective as well. And I think from the first reading, what Jake brought to us, the promise all those years ahead was being brought to fulfillment through the prophet who was going to be announcing this Jesus. I just, I just want us to be reminded of one of the things that I said last week before we get into the message. I want to ask you, as I did last week, are you carving out time in this season to wait, to hear the voice of the Lord, to open up the scriptures, to take a breath in the midst of everything that is crazy? I know that this season is, is very busy, and we can fill our time with all kinds of things. But it is of no use to us if we are going 150,000 miles an hour and we miss the very presence of God in the midst of everything. Are you carving out time during the day, during this season, to wait for his voice, to hear what his spirit has to say to you, to revisit, as it were, this story in a brand new way, to see if you can be encouraged in what it is he's telling us? I think it's important, very important that we do that. And I want to encourage you again this week to please do so. Carve out a couple minutes in your day to just shut everything down. Just sit in silence before the Lord. The world consumes so much of our time that we we have a hard time hearing. And we're going to learn today uh, that Isaiah was able to actually hear for various reasons. And I've titled the message this week, God in the Manger. It's a real simple title, just God in the Manger. And what I want us primarily to be looking at is that there is always hope in the darkness. The theme of light and darkness this year is just, it keeps coming through for me. And there is always hope in the darkness of this world through this child that was born for us, to this son that was given to us. He, Jesus the man, the God man, the King of kings and Lord of lords, is the light that shines into the darkness of this world. He is the true king over all of creation and over all of humanity. And if we take nothing else away today, I want us to be able to get our hands around that, to be able to rest in that truth. Because I can imagine in reading Isaiah, I can imagine each morning uh, this white bearded old man stumbling down the street, the cobblestone streets of that old city now on the verge of collapse. The enemy literally at the gate waiting for the whole city to collapse and go hungry. Darkness and gloom presses in on every single side into the room where it is he actually takes his time to pray, where it is he seeks the face of Yahweh, the God of Israel, where he waits to hear his voice speak to him in the quietness of that and in the midst of the day and all of the chaos that he faces. He goes to this room every day, perhaps lighting a candle or two as he settles in behind the table that he has all his writing stuff to light the room a little bit better than it was so he can prepare his heart and his mind and everything else for a day of writing to hear what it is the Lord has to say to him. He had only gotten so far the day before, I can imagine. I'm reading between the lines and, you know, give me the grace to do so. But he only gotten so far the day before. And I can imagine him having ventured back home and sitting at table with his wife at dinner and his wife asks him, you know, how your day was. What was it the Lord spoke to you? What was it that he had you write today? And I wonder if you can picture that scene in your mind as you read the scriptures. Think about it. Not just words on a page, but picture that scene. We all ought to be able to do so because we are human beings living in real time on the timeline of history as we journey forward in this life. Real people living real lives, just like Isaiah, wrestling with real problems. His was far greater than probably anything any of us face at this moment. All the while trusting, I hope, 
and God to take care of us and to light the way and preserve us in the midst of all of the things that are going on. And it caused me to think, it's almost like this Elijah moment. That moment when Elijah uh, had his greatest victory, as it were. If you're unfamiliar with that, it was a time that he had his greatest success because God had given him that success when he was able to destroy all the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. I did a sermon series once called Barbecue at Carmel uh, around how it was Elijah was so successful there. But as is always the case, soon after he comes down that mountain, he comes into the valley of despair and darkness. His glorious moment is, it disappears almost as quickly as it arrived. It's an all too familiar story for the people of Israel and for human beings in general. This cranky old woman Jezebel at the bottom of the hill is just waiting. And she caused the prophet to panic and to flee into the wilderness where he found a cave to hide in after some 40 days and 40 nights of just running. And it was there that God got a hold of him in the quietness of that. In 1 Kings 19, we discover something that Elijah discovers that I think is important for us as we unpack the rest of Isaiah's story. There, there he came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. These are the same types of things Isaiah and the likes of Habakkuk would have been dealing with as well. And, and he said, the Lord said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. See, it was in that moment, in that moment in that cave where Elijah learned that God is not in the chaos of our day-to-day -day lives. He is not in the messes that we deal with. He is not in all of the things that press in against us in this world. But rather, he is in the sounds of silence. That thin veiled silence in between. It's found when we set ourselves aside and we push away all of the chaos and all of the noise that presses in on us every single day. It's there in that still, small, quiet voice that God speaks. And it's there that we hear the voice of God. We can't hear the voice of God if we don't put ourselves in a place of being quiet. Because it is there in the silence of waiting, in the silence of listening for what it is he has to say to us. We are waiting and we are listening for the hope of God's promises to be fulfilled. That's what it is we're doing. You see, Isaiah is feeling very much the same way as Elijah did, I suspect, with all of the evil that's pressing in all around. And he has to feel as if he's all alone in the midst of all of this stuff because it is in the silence and in the midst of the darkness and gloom that it actually happens for him. As he sits down, he picks up his pen, he dips it in the inkwell, and he begins to write what that gentle whisper says to him in that moment in time. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. I can imagine him stopping and putting the pen back in the ink thing and asking himself, what is this all about? Because it doesn't make sense in the situation I'm in. And then he starts writing again, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Strange. Strange as it may seem, when you look at these verses, it's actually the grace of God exploding onto the scene of where Isaiah is through these verses and onto the scene of rebellion where the people of Israel are in complete rebellion before the Lord with a promise of a child being born and the promise of a son being given. And he, this child, this son, is going to be many things on behalf of the people of Israel and in fact on behalf of the entire world. But that's not what it looks like for Isaiah at the moment that he's writing these things. You see, Bonhoeffer commenting on this verse, he says this, it's still 700 years until the fulfillment. That's how far into the future Isaiah is seeing these events. But the prophet is so deeply immersed in God's thought and counsel that he speaks of the future as if he saw it already. And he speaks of the salvific hour as if he stood in adoration before the manger of Jesus. For a child has been born for us. You see, what will happen one day, Bonhoeffer continues, is already real and certain in God's eyes. It's a done deal. And it will not be only for the salvation of future generations, but already for the prophet who sees it coming and for his generation, indeed for all generations of the earth. I want you to notice with me here what's going on. This doesn't come at a time of comfort, does it? They are not in peace. They are not in a time of security. You see, this coming king who it seems very clear is promised at a time of rebellion and exile for his people. Put ourselves in Isaiah's place. Put ourselves in the place of the people of Israel at this time. And this scripture doesn't make a whole lot of sense. There's promises for the future. But how does it work out for now? You see, and that's really why verse 5 stands out kind of odd in the midst of this beautiful passage When Isaiah writes, for every boot of the trampling warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire, Merry Christmas. Have a good day. How do do we deal with that? Well, if if we unpack it in light of what we learned last week in verse 4 and the reminder that God had dealt with Egypt and Pharaoh as well as the Midianites who had been oppressing Israel, remember, when they were in exile there, he will take care of, in fact, has already set it up. The plan is already in place to take care of the enemy at the gate. Before the people of Israel have even left to go into exile, God is letting them know that those who are bringing you into exile are going to be dealt with when you come back here. What I did with Egypt and what I did with Midian, I will also do to Babylon. Doesn't look like that now, but that is a promise that you can hold on to. You are going away, but I will make sure you come back and I will deal with the people who are taking you away in the midst of it all. You see, this second exile, this next time of waiting, as it were, for the people of Israel is suddenly upon them after all of the years of having their own kingdom. And God is showing them that he already has a plan in place to redeem them and bring them back to their homes once again. And they haven't even left yet. It's what Isaiah is trying to encourage them in here. That's grace. 
In the midst of rebellion, God is putting a plan in place to save his people who don't want anything to do with him. That is abundant grace. That is the love of God that is being poured out upon a people, even on his rebellious children. And I find great hope in that. And that's a lesson that we learned as we unpacked Habakkuk this summer as well. That in the midst of all of these things, God loves his people. But in order to love them the way he's supposed to as any good father would, they have to be punished for the things they're doing wrong. And that's what's happening here. In the midst of this text, it's a reminder to endure, to trust God in the midst of all of the things that are going on. Why? Well, if we take a look at this, what we're seeing here is Isaiah is giving us a hint as to why it is we can be very settled. The deliverer is coming. It's a promise. In the midst of your rebellion, the deliverer is coming. The child is going to be born for you. The son is given to you. And everything is going to rest on his shoulders. You see, even though at the moment, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and his armies are at the gates of this rebellious people, they are to trust their king. They are to trust the Lord. Can we do that when we are in situations like that? Do we do that when our government seems like it's going completely sideways? When our world feels like it's in wholesale collapse? Can, can we do what Isaiah is encouraging us to do? Trust in him. Why? Because a child is born, a son is given. It's a done deal. It's a wonderful story. But, but how do we sort out the fact that this promise is being given to a rebellious people? How does that light shine in such a dark place as once again, another king, another tyrant, thinking that he rules everything by his own accord, is standing just outside that city and at that very moment, he is planning on destroying the temple and the entire city and taking everyone away. Now, I understand this doesn't sound much like a Christmas story, but this is the Christmas story. This is the Christmas story. In a time of deep darkness, a light shines. And light shines the brightest always when it's the darkest. Again, we look at verse 6, and we have to understand God's grace in the midst of Isaiah 9. The abundant grace of God. In the darkness of rebellion, light will always shine. You cannot put that light out. And the doctrine of God's grace in this very moment of time gives the entire world hope that things are going to end the way they're supposed to. And the world has hope through the people of Israel because the promises of God are fulfilled through the people of Israel. Isaiah 42, 6 and 7 tells us that they are set up to be a light of revelation to the Gentiles. They are to bring the hope of the gospel to the world. It is through the people of Israel. And Isaiah sees all of this very clearly. He sees it all very clearly just as if it's already happened because it has already happened on the timeline of history. In God's economy, he sees the beginning he sees the middle, and he sees the end all at the same time. God doesn't see future events like we do. He doesn't see past events like we do. He doesn't see the present as we do. He sees it all as happening all together. And when God promises something, even if it's 700 years into the future, it's already come to pass. It's already come to pass. One of the things that I think that we need to understand as we take a look at this in a Christmas season like this, or any season in your life that you struggle, we, can, we have trouble praying for leading and discernment to get us to next Friday, some of us. I mean, let's be honest with ourselves. Now, I tell people I map out an entire year, and they want to know how hard I hit my head. 
But we struggle sometimes to get to next Friday. But in the midst of that, we're very prayerful to be obedient within that framework. Whatever it is God is showing us to do. I want you to understand something. That in the midst of the providence of God and the grace of God and the sovereignty of God, we are kept by Him in each and every situation that we find ourselves in. That's the beautiful thing about this story. Isaiah and the people of Israel are finding themselves in absolute rebellion and the city is going to be crushed. And yet they are kept by God. He knows the beginning from the end. And there's great peace to be found in that. And there's great hope to be found in that. We are kept by God, even in the midst of our rebellion. So whatever struggle you have, whatever sickness you're dealing with, whatever issue you have going on in your life, or seemingly hopeless situation that you find yourself in, you need to know that the God of all hope is with you in it all. And you are kept in him. That's a promise that he gives us. So whether you've got a wayward child who you constantly are praying for, who you are struggling with, who just won't seem to come back home, or you're in a marriage where the wheels are spinning 100 miles an hour, but it's not seeming to work the way it's supposed to work, or you've got issues at work that you can't sort out, or you've got family members, whatever it may be, life happens to each and every human being at 60 seconds a minute. And we are kept in God in every single one of those seconds. And he has got everything in the palm of his hand. And he cares far more for you than even you care for you. So everything that we have, we can trust that he's got it under control. Even if sometimes that journey is a very difficult journey as we face the unknown in front of us with so much change and unsettledness in the world. How do you think the people of Israel felt at this moment that Isaiah was writing this? We have to rest in God. We have to rest in his sovereignty and we have to trust in his providential care that he is going to take care of every single thing that comes our way. He actually has everything under control, even when it looks like nothing's in control. And we, we see from Isaiah that he is the God of history itself. When it's all pressing in, when you don't think you can get the Tuesday, remember that the light always shines the brightest in the darkest of places. It is there where he will meet you in your need. The story of the coming king, this promised Messiah, is one of the most beautiful and one of the most hopeful stories I think has ever been written. God had planned from all eternity that in this Jesus, in this little baby, this child born, this son given, that God would fix this broken world and he would fix us, his image bearers, through this child. He will take the time to shine that light on the pathway home and lead this entire world in the way that God has always intended it to be led with Jesus as king and everybody being treated and handled the way they ought to be. And for those of us who are in Christ, we get to enjoy that kingship for eternity. That's a promise that he gives us. Why? Because he is the wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. He's the everlasting father. He's the prince of peace. When we need help, he is our wonderful counselor. When we need strength, he is the mighty God. When we need somebody to console us and to walk with us, he is our everlasting father. And when we are struggling and nothing is settled around us, he is our prince of peace. He is everything. He is the king of kings. Bonhoeffer again says, only the spirit of God who encompasses the beginning and the end of the world can in such a way reveal to a chosen person, Isaiah, the mysteries of the future so that he must prophesy 
for strengthening believers and warning unbelievers. I find that interesting. And I sat there and I chewed on that for a little while, that Isaiah is being given this window so he can, he can strengthen those who believe and he can bring warning to those who don't believe. So what that really says to me is that the king at the gate, you pick the gate. For Israel, it was the front gate. But the king at the gate, whatever gate, that king who is pressing in against you, whatever that may be, the king at the gate is absolutely nothing compared to God in the manger. Absolutely nothing to God in the manger. This seemingly insignificant little child wearing a diaper born of questionable parentage will shake the foundations of every king, every kingdom, and every government that ever ruled the face of this planet. Right to its core. You see, Nebuchadnezzar, just like Pharaoh, is going to serve the purposes of God on earth and he will stand before the God of heaven and he will have to give an account for every one of the abuses and every one of the oversteps that he took against the people of Israel and everybody else that God put under his care within the sovereign plan of God, which Nebuchadnezzar chose to overstep his bounds. He will stand before God one day, even though God used him to bring judgment against his own people. Why? Because every single king and every single kingdom, while ordained by God, because all government was ordained by God, and we don't have time to wrestle that out, but every single king and kingdom is accountable to God for their actions and their abuses. Don't you think for a moment that a kingdom on this planet that has existed isn't going to be before the king of kings and have to bring an answer for their abuses, most especially against the most helpless among us, the foreigner, the widow, the orphan, all of those people, the poor, the needy. Don't think for a minute that people are not going to be held accountable for that. It's going to happen. You see, Nebuchadnezzar is going to end up like all the other governments this world has ever seen. On the ash heap of history, just like the United States, as awful as that sounds, at one point, if we don't figure it out, we're going to end up just like every other country in this world. Because that's history. As the governments of this world ultimately rest upon the shoulder of this promised child. Because that's what Isaiah says. Every government that this world has ever seen will rest upon the shoulder of this promised child. The one that Isaiah sees as he stands on his tiptoes and he looks down the long corridors of history to try and figure out what's going on. When God finally puts everything to rights in this world, he is the one who's going to rule this world and he's going to do so with justice and he's going to do so right. All of these despotic rulers and kings that we read about in the newspapers every day who's you, who use human beings, and I say this all the time, and until we get it in our DNA to fight against this, I'm going to say it until I die. Every despotic ruler and every king who uses human beings as pawns in their lust for power will never escape the judgment of God. And as the church, we need to do what the church is supposed to do and to speak out against things like that. Because God will hold people to account for abusing other people for no reason other than to control them, to have power over them, and to do silly things in this world. You see, for as beautiful as Christmas is, and it is, and as pregnant as it is with the hope of salvation when we take a look at this passage, we have to understand that God through this baby in the manger has put the entire world from the beginning to end in all of creation on Notice. I don't know if anybody's ever looked at this passage this way before. I know I haven't. But that's what's going on here. Justice is coming. 
and righteousness will be seen in this world. How do I know? Because of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end, Isaiah pens. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Well, how do we know? How do we know that that's going to happen? Well, just like that big fat exclamation point you want to put at the end of a sentence to make your point, that's exactly what Isaiah does. He closes that verse out with, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So it doesn't even have anything to do with us. God said it. He promised it. He said it's going to come to pass. It's going to be done. Full stop. No matter what. Take it to the bank. It's going to happen. Everything that Nebuchadnezzar the king isn't, guess what? Jesus is. Everything that Nebuchadnezzar hoped that he was and couldn't be, Jesus is. Everything that every king in this world has ever wanted to be and tried to be and attempted to be and couldn't be, Jesus is. This is the hope of all Israel and it's the hope of all the world. And in one of the darkest hours of coming exile for the people of Israel, through Isaiah, God is encouraging his people that he will always be faithful to them even if they are not faithful to him. He cannot deny himself. And that's a promise for us as well. We can hold that as tight as possible. No matter how dark our world is, no matter how crazy it gets, a light shines in the darkness. Why? Because God is in the manger. God is in the manger. That still small voice, the whisper of God to the prophet, some 700 years prior and some 2,000 years ago for us now, guess what? We discover in Luke, it suddenly breaks open. It suddenly breaks open once again and the events of Isaiah begin to unpack and unfold in real time. When Luke records for us what he saw in the future and we see in the past, it breaks open in this little town of Bethlehem and the angel said to them, now what was a prophetic message is being fulfilled right here and right now. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. When the angel went away with them, away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they heard, heard and seen as it had been told them. I'm not sure Mary did know. I'm not sure Mary did know. I don't think she knew the pain and the suffering that it was going to be for her in order for her little baby boy to deliver this world. And I wonder sometimes as we close, if I could have the worship team come up. I often wonder, and maybe this is just me, so forgive me, but I wonder if we, we forget to really rest before these types of passages of Scripture and ask ourselves, what did God really do for us? What did he really do for us in the giving of his boy? And what was it Jesus decided to do from the days of eternity when he said yes 
I'll do that, Father. I know it will cost me everything, but if it will bring your kids home, I'll do it. I'll go into this world as a human being. I'll be born as a little baby. I won't even be able to walk. I won't even be able to talk. I won't be able to do anything. I'll give up my rightful throne for a bunch of rebellious people right down there on planet Earth because you said you want them to come home to me. That's grace. That's love. I sometimes wonder if we just forget how, how, how much Christmas really, really speaks to the heart of God. How much he cares for this world, for his people. I want to challenge you as we close in this one last song and in prayer. Will you revisit the manger? If you know Jesus, will you revisit the manger this Christmas season? Will you sit before it and will you ask the Lord to show you the abundance of his grace that was poured out? We have a couple more weeks to keep unpacking this story. But let us be reminded that God has called you out of darkness and into this marvelous light. Let's remember that. Let's stand. Thank you, Father.